stop and take a trip down on my block where you see hidden potential young minds sharper than pencil and ain't afraid to speak they mind if they got something against you we standing with you we tackle issues like civic pride hate will cease to exist let's put our differences aside from my side to your side from dutch town to south side from penrose to north side from benton park to old north to west end the west side we bless when we step out we stand down rise up stand together wise up this is Stitch Cast Studio, produced by St. Louis Story Stitchers in St. Louis, Missouri. This is a special edition of Stitch Cast Studio, The Divided City, titled Dislocation and Disorientation of Black Families, featuring filmmaker and WashU alumni June Bay and Tawande Mustakeen, professor of history and African American studies at WashU. They say who that, but you already knew that. That beat them Story Stitchers, Story Stitchers, Story Stitchers, Story Stitchers, Story Stitchers. Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning in to another installment of Stitch Cast Studio. I'm your host, Brandon Lewis, and I am accompanied by three members of our Stitch Cast. If, you, if you've seen anything to do with Story Stitches, you know who this person is. We got Emira. How you feeling, E? Emira. It is so good to be here. Um, thanks for having me on the podcast, Brandon. Yo, I'm glad, I'm glad you can make it. I'm glad you can make it. This is going to be a good one. So, guys, we have two guests with us today. The first one being an award-winning book writer, an associate professor. Uh, if you hear her voice and she sounds a little familiar, then you might have caught our second installment uh, of our series called Trauma as Culture and Black families where she was a guest alongside Dr. John A. Wright. Please Stitchcast help me in welcoming back Dr. Shuwandi Mustakin. Wow. <laughs> yes, ma'am. We glad to have you back. I'm telling you, they, they've been talking about it all yesterday. We're going to get into it. We're going to get into it. Before we start, before we start, though, we got another guest. Now, this one is a first timer to the series, but it's definitely no stranger to, to the organization. Uh, he's an award winner in his own right. Uh, he received the Vital Perspective Award for his creation of the short film Exodus, which was actually created in response to the Ferguson outrage in uh, St. Louis, which we're going to talk more about later. Uh, but Stitch Cast. Please, please, please help me and welcome in Joan Bay. How are you guys doing? How are you guys doing? That was like how you feeling? Intro. I'm doing great. Oh, appreciate you. I try. I try. Appreciate <laughs> you. All right, yeah, we can we can jump we can jump right we can jump right in because like I said, uh, we were talking about it a lot yesterday. Everybody's excited to uh, to get into it. Let's just jump right in. Uh, Joan, since this is your first time in this series, uh, I'll ask you the first question. Uh, I, I'm, I'm interested in how old you were when you decided that you wanted to express yourself through art, and how did you decide that Stanford and uh, WashU were the uh, were the way to go? Oh, okay, okay. So you know, I started in the architecture program at WashU in the Fox School in 2012. And so this was already nine years ago, but I was, you know, a freshman at the time, just doing, you know, regular architectural uh, design program, attend these classes. And so on my third year, my junior year was when the Ferguson, all of that happened in 2014. And so at that time, I was still an architecture student, but I was taking photographs of the event. Um, you know, I was taking first, you know, I had interest in photography, um, you know, taking models of the the design that I do on the buildings, but then that kind of transfer over to using those as a, a medium for photojournalism at the time. And so from then on, I switched to uh, moving images to the to recording cameras. And so from then on, you know, I never really stopped back. So I want to say 2014, 2015 was when I, you know, decided to go full on with uh, with my camera. Got you. 
Got you. Got you. That makes all the sense in the world. Since you've <laughs> already kind of started t- uh, touching on it uh, with what was happening in Ferguson or whatnot, what, what, can you walk me through the creative process or the uh, or, or, or that moment that inspired you to uh, create something in response to that? So, yeah, like I said, I started, you know, with stills, with photography. And I remember I had a Canon, um, I think like a 60D or something like that with a flip camera. So I was using mostly as a um, for photography for all the protest protests that was happening on the highways, you know, in downtown. They had it um, so many multiple times in front of City Hall. You know, I have all those photos and even from Ferguson as well, from those riots that happened during the riot and everything. And so I had all these photographs. And so I wanted to do something about them or, you know, try to make sense of all these things that was happening around me at the time. And so from then on, I, you know, I was taking these classes uh, with Denise Ward Brown. She's still in the San Fox School. She's a professor there at the San Fox School. But she was teaching a class called uh, Documenting Our Divide, which was part of the Divided City Grant that um, you know, you guys are, are working on or you guys got at this time. And so, you know, we had our cameras. It was like a camcorder. Um, so I started shooting with those at first. I was shooting in HD. And at the time, also, there was another um, kind of critical moment. Um, so there's a professor called Bob Hansman, who's also in the San Fox School. And he's an architectural professor who does uh, tours of St. Louis as a divided city. And mm. so he would take you know, all of us um, to these different neighborhoods, including St. Louis Place, but also Ferguson and all these different neighborhoods downtown, you know, where Mill Creek Valley used to be and all these different sites. Um, And so from then on, I kind of started to piece things together, but, um, you know, making the film, making that documentary film, my first feature film, Bob's Tour, was a way for me to kind of understand what was happening and also utilizing those photographies that I had and incorporate those into the storytelling. And so that's how I began in 2014. And I was making uh, the film in my senior year. So like 2015, 2016 was when I was working on the film. And I finished that um, pretty much like around a couple months before I graduated. And then, you know, I just kind of kept working on it over the summer. And then, you know, that was uh, entered into the St. Louis International Film Festival. And from then on, you know, there was a lot of, different outlets as well as different people that was reaching out to me so from then on you know i was also making short films alongside the feature film kind of stemming out from bob's store so exodus that you mentioned earlier was stemming out from one of the kind of one of the stops that bob makes at st louis place and also uh you know at st leo's baptist church the formal site as well as uh, grace baptist church And so, you know, Bob's tour was uh, essentially kind of a compilation of all these different topics. And but I wanted to focus on certain specific topics uh, with a short film and kind of hone into those ideas and, um, you know, tell the story. So Exodus was one of them. I also have a a short film about Grace Baptist Church that's also available. So, you know, um, feel free to check it out when you guys have the chance. But that's when I um, kind of had that turnover from using photography as a medium and then I, I remember I was looking at these photographs I printed them out and you know it was like I was laying them out kind of like how film edits uh, old time film editors do kind of laying out the, the, the images and so from then on it just made so much more sense for me to do it in, um, in the form of a film more than the photography 
I, I think it just had a wider reach, um, you know, for in my mind, you know, in telling the story than say like a couple, you know, a fo- a photographs can do. So, and I used those photographs in the film as well. So it, it just worked out for me. Um, and the medium was just perfect for me. And all the things that I learned in the architectural um, program actually applied to the filmmaking, even though, you know, I, I never learned about filmmaking specifically. Just working on these projects, you know, from conception to, you know, execution, that whole workflow was essentially the same. So it didn't take much time for me to transition from, say, like building architectural models to photography to, um, you know, filmmaking. There, there's, they, there's always, a, for me, I feel like there's always a common kind of process. And so it was easier for me to kind of accommodate that. I wanted to just kind of say uh, real quick, that's actually really inspiring, you know, to know that you actually didn't start taking videography. You really didn't start diving into it until like 2015, you know, so just to people who's like listening to this. And then I also want to say, you know, how such a event like Mike Brown can bring us all together. And like, because I remember Dr. Shawande, when I when I first met you, I think you were talking about how you were coming back and you found out about, you know, what happened to Mike Brown. You know, so just realizing that everybody was like in one place almost at the same time and we didn't even know each other. And then it was like all oh, kind of comes around full circle and like here we are, you know, talking about it and actually like dialoguing. Yeah, I just want to throw that out there. Most <laughs> um, really yeah. Quick. Since this podcast is called, you know, Dislocation and Disorientation of Black Families, I wanted to know from your perspective, and June, you can also touch on this too if you want to, but how has the dislocation of Black families um, distorted our perspectives of who we are? Thank you for that. And as one who, in my everyday, I'm looking at the movement and the trauma that's inflicted within slavery at sea within this history and this history of what we think we know, we forget about what happens when people are forcibly moved or when we're having to to be separated and then what happens. There's a full disruption of a family, of generations, of communities. And so I'm speaking broadly, but this has been ongoing over time. And then now seeing where we are in 2021 and thinking about even 2014 or even thinking about 2000, where were we? For me, I was finished college and thinking about, we were very divided by the end of the 90s. And I'm looking then at how much we've had to think about change. We've had to think about disruption and the movement and even thinking about environment. Actually, that's another thing that right now, as we are experiencing a pandemic, we're also having to think about how climate can affect our lives and then how it can disrupt. So through that, our physical spaces are affected. We're now having to innovate in new ways to, to, as we know, remotely connect. So there's so many different layers to it, but then it's about through the separation, where and how can you evolve to activate in other ways? For me, I'm not from here. I'm from Pittsburgh and then yet my, my, my family moved to Atlanta. So that movement, to, to, to the South, and then here I am in the Midwest of all places that I never saw myself coming. And then to be here now for almost 14 years in an extremely divided city. I can say that, I'm from Atlanta. I am from the absolute deep South, but this place is so 
So northern is southern. So southern is northern. It's so it's just mm. wild to um, be here and try to make sense of a place that doesn't even understand that blood literally is like lined across this entire state. The more that I uncovered the history of this state alone, there's so mm. much bloodshed that has really disrupted many lives, but especially black lives. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. Mm. Yeah, no, I think I think that's definitely there's some, you know, I can say like no certain, you know, access to those kind of not necessarily access, but, you know, it wasn't something that was that I would kind of see around when I'm at school and things like that. So, you know, they call it the Washu bubbles, but that's definitely real. And so this whole event kind of bursted those bubbles for a lot of people, um, including myself. And so at the time, you know, it was all across the, you know, the media was definitely a huge player, like even my parents from all the way from you know, Seoul, Korea, they were, you know, talking about, you know, Ferguson, which is crazy thing to me. But at the time, you know, it, it was it was such a explosive kind of event that happened and all the anger. And I can feel those things at the at the protest, too, like a lot of the frustration and all the mis, you know, communication and it, everything. So from then on, you know, I think there was um, and also I had, um, you know, friends that was living uh, some dancer friends, Crumpers, who were living in Ferguson as well. And so I think that was kind of a way for me to see it from kind of like both channels, one from kind of like the media's kind of perspective, but also from just having my friend who lived literally, you know, not a couple minutes away from where the uh, where, where it went where, um, you know, they call it quote unquote ground zero, but from, from that, um, from the, from that street. And so, you know, and then I ended up making a film about the Crumpers in relation to all that event in Ferguson, um, later on after I graduated and it's called the buck. And it's also available if you, if you guys have a chance to take a look, it's a 20 minute film that kind of chronicles the start of the St. Louis Crump movement. Um, and then also just kind of, you know, their daily kind of memories about what happened and how they were kind of processing at the time. And so, and it's also combined with dance too. And so I think, I think it's, um, great to check out, but you know, that sense of kind of this activation was definitely one thing that I experienced at the time. And there was a lot of confusion as well. Um, that I experienced too. And I think a lot of people were confused at the time as well. And seeing things, you know, kind of being organized on certain parts, but there were so many like disruption and from all directions and, um, you know, and seeing the process too of people, you know, the uh, the media would tend to focus on Ferguson, but there was so many stuff kind of happening around simultaneously. Like, so that's what Exodus is essentially focusing on the, the displacement and, you know, using uh, eminent domain to kind of kick all the people out from this neighborhood but seeing that pattern happen today, even today, and, you know, it's not something that ended, but it's happening today as well. So that was something that I wanted to kind of put it out there was that it was a it was a continuation. It wasn't something that just happened in the past. Uh, the the uh, the film that you mentioned before uh, before Exodus, what was the name of it? Oh, so it's called The Buck, B-U-C-K. Um, That's a crump term, right? Yeah, they use the, the buck as a way to kind of express their crump movement. The mid, it's called the Midwest Gully is, is the name of the movement in the Midwest. But uh, yeah, I, I named it the Buck for the film because, you know, they use that all the time when they're sessioning. And so, you know, I still actually work with some Crumpers in uh, in L.A. as well. So it kind of continues on. But yeah, I, I think it's, uh, you know, they talk about their experience, you know, kind of while they were, you know, because they, they session. 
stationed pretty much like not, not far away from where the incident happened in Ferguson before, you know, the whole thing happened. And then after that went down, they couldn't session there anymore because there was just too much, um, you know, kind of traction and all these uh, people coming by. So they had to relocate. So they talk about those things as well and how the Crump movement was also affected um, in, in a different way than most people do. So I have a question. So we had, I don't know if you all know, we had two dance battles at the very beginning of fall. There we had a lot of crumpers, so from there my my crump IQ has risen a lot. So I just wanted to ask if you say you work with some people out in LA. Um, have you ever gotten a chance to work with the actual creator of Crump? I think his name is uh, Tight Eyes. Yeah, yeah. You know what? I actually never um, had a chance to work with him yet. But essentially, you know, his um, essentially his you know, kind of his group or his his uh, family or, you know, when he was younger, he, um, I'm working with this guy called um, Cali Crease. His also, uh, his nickname is also Smokes, but he's also in the movie Rise, which, you know, kind of chronicles that whole transition from clowning to crumping. And at the time, I think Tide Eyes is, is pretty young. He's like a teenager, but like his friends, one of his friends is Cali Crease, who, who I'm working with right now. So we shot um, at this uh, abandoned military base in Victorville um, with him and his kids actually um, and then it's about kind of you know making a positive in fact impact instead of focusing on all these negativities that's going around so yeah it's it's in uh, production right now and hopefully it'll be done I want to say like in a month maybe like a month and a half two months absolutely I asked too because for me I, w I was asking that because as I've seen more crumpers in like the movement, it reminds me a lot of hip hop and like how young hip hop is. Cause I think Crump is only like 20 years old or something like that. Mm -hmm. And just how, how people use these things, you know, to deal with the world around them, you know, and how they like really get into it. Like, you know, it's just amazing to see that to me. Cause I've always been like a rapper. I never really danced. You know what I'm saying? I always just stuck with the writing side of music. Mm -hmm. So to see somebody to make these words come to life in another way is just amazing to me. So yeah. Hey, everybody, it's time right now for our Pick the City Up art interlude titled We Cope by Story Stitchers on Emira. Copyright held by St. Louis Story Stitchers. They soar like eagles. They sing like crows. And they hawk through our streets. As daylight sings, darkness sings his bitter song. Children playing in the streets, their older siblings out hotter than heat. Mama trying to tell them to cool down, but they won't listen until they hear mama scream. The sniffles from her nose, riots out of control. R.I.P. and B on clothes. Police can hardly gain control on TV like a show. But they only show when fools are being made and not the making of greatness. You see, his death is not in vain. New voices have rearranged a chain of events and for once we're slowly starting to see change. Badges next to cameras, cameras next to temple. Now you don't have to be a scholar to think twice before squeezing your chopper, or at least we'd hope to cope with the pain of still some still tope. You see, his death was not in vain, but some still cope. So they shoot at the sky because hell is too hot and fires without reason. So those bullets still soar. They sing like crows and they hawk through our streets. 
Night is today, as bitter is to sweet. As we sleep, pistols breach the integrity of all communities. Broken unity calls for broken relationships, which brings broken people. More trauma as time passes, more than one would ask, more than one wants to see, and more than we were taught to speak. So lonely nights he thinks about MB, how he wants to change this contradicting system, not just the laws, but the people that come with them. But then he remembered that he's a felon with every right but the one to use his voice. So back to hiding behind his tote, he goes with words choked out of his throat. Now his heart's too cold to provide tears for his eyes to cope. Back to prison, or at least they'd hope. So they still saw. They sing like crows, and they hawk through our streets. As daylight peaks, darkness still sings songs that are bitterly sweet. Those who can see and have the courage to speak have helped us continue our journey where we hope to find peace. Mike Brown's death didn't just show us that there is a gun problem in the police force, but in our communities where little kids are forced to grow up faster than they should. Let these senseless acts of violence encourage you to be the change that you want to see. Do it for the ones that cannot, the ones that want better, even the ones that don't know better, because I would do it for all four of my friends who were shot and killed in 2018, and three of the four will never get to see 21, and here I am, 22, wishing they could see it, wishing we didn't have to grow up so fast, wishing we could have grew up outside of the system but they still soar. They sing like crows and they hawk through all streets. When night turns to day, I hope that every blind eye can see how high death sings and why mama screams. Thank you. Speaking of um, words coming to life, June got to touch on it. Doctor, I would like you to touch on it a little bit too. Could you describe what made you decide to start writing and just expressing yourself artistically all together? Thank you uh, for that. Wow, that's quite a question to sort of <laughs> go far back and think, and where did it start? Because it started the moment that I came into the world. Then to be raised by a mother that you can do everything you want, you just have to figure out time management. So that meant I'm doing soccer, I'm doing singing, and then also having to keep the grades up and doing softball and doing all these things. And then over time, getting more into the arts. I was doing acting, I was doing singing, I was doing dance. I was doing all these things that really weren't a part of the path that a lot of people know now. And that all was leading up. So that meant my mother was exposing me to a whole lot while at the same time I was learning how to produce, how to be your own artist, how to begin to create the world, the many worlds and the multi-worlds and, and, and to bring together your gifts. Like what if you're actually able to do many things? So over time, um, going to college, obviously that was one of the biggest things. 
And now that my story is starting to come out more that 20 years ago, I was the first person to graduate with a degree in African-American studies from uh, Elon College, which is now at Elon University in North Carolina, that really became a, a, a major turning point because to have to really justify why I want to study Blackness and then to take the many years in grad school to really go deep, to learn how to write, to learn how to research, to begin to transmit to the future a deeper, rich history that is there. And so as time was going on, it really, and I, communal, the whole collective force, really, I can't emphasize, I can't overemphasize it enough that it's been so much in other people reminding me, do you see your greatness? Oh, wow, you're good at this, or, you know, go deeper in this, and the future will be better for these conversations. So I got, I grew more confident in the conversations as, honestly, also as my life was taking a lot of transformational turns, let's say that, a lot of death, a death, it seemed like every, at every corner. So I learned how to rechannel through what, could be the absolute low points and then writing myself through and out of very tough situations sometimes, anxiety and depression, but also, again, death, dad in jail, mom, all these just various things. Um, so the art itself for me is living. It is being here. It is thriving. It is continuing to nurture the future. And then I feel like I'm just getting started and I've done so much. And later in life, now, the musical side has come out. So that artistic side has moved to another level, but yet some people say, aren't you just a professor? And then it becomes, oh, don't you just do one thing? And now it's allowed me to empower my students like, hey, yeah, I'm on 90 albums on Bandcamp. And then, hey, then I was outperforming across St. Louis. Yeah, I'm one of the fastest drummers, fastest female drummers here. Yes, I play space drums. I do all these various things that the art also becomes a meditation and living. And now I'm a, one of the few black sound healers. So even this weekend, I'm going to be hosting meditation in order for my students in the world to begin to understand the need for going into yourself. So that way, then you can activate the art because meditation is the reason why you all have me now, because I really was about to walk away from just all what I saw as the chaos of a academia and mm. have two weeks to go inside change my life. So the art itself has been evolution, but most living. So have you ever just wanted to um, give up in your journey? You said that I ever want to give up? Yes. Have you ever wanted to give up or felt discouraged in your journey? Oh my gosh, yes. However, the world wouldn't know it because I would never let the world see me cry. That meant I would have to rechannel it. I have to show up and I have to like, I'm here with great purpose. Even if I feel like unsure, even if I'm not sure what I'm going to do, even if I'm not sure mm -hmm. where this is going to go. So it was walking in my truth and my confidence while at times stumbling. So yes, there were many times. And there were also people who, you know, would offer some unsolicited commentary, like, you know, you don't belong here, or you know, you'll never go on to do this or that. So that, that for me became fuel. You tell me no, you tell me I can't, I'm going to figure it out. So in that way, um, Yes, there were many times that I was not sure how I was gonna keep going. And my mom, both my parents and my family, they were always in my ear about, you must finish what you start. So completion is what kept and drives me. It drives me all the time. Whatever I start, if I can do multiple things, it's about finishing it for the future most. You, like, the whole thing about you, like, talking about your drive, like, I, I did a little, like, research 
on you, of course. And it said that you like got awarded the Dred Scott like Freedom Award for your like book called Slavery at Sea, mm-hmm. uh, Tear of Sex and, Sex and Sickness in the Middle Passage. Can you uh, elaborate a little bit on that, like your process of creating that dialogue for people? Sure, sure. Yes, I will say that I, I'm very honored to have been awarded the Dred Scott Freedom um, Award for Historical Literacy Excellence. And that, that, and being in Missouri, it just means so much in understanding this deeper Black history here. I can say that 21 years ago, if someone said, hey, you're going to write a book that's going to change the world and a whole other dialogue about slavery, I never would have thought it would have been me because... I'm a, a student of the world, I love learning. So I never saw a student, I never saw school ending. That said, the process itself was, I went to 25 archives across the world with one question in mind. What was the friendship experience like? And then going to England and Jamaica and all across the East Coast and the North and the South, and like going to Boston and to Rhode Island and North Carolina and South Carolina and just all over. I wanted to understand the, the the human experience for many people. And we've left that conversation just at adult black men. And that is not fair to the many who have also been forcibly removed and transported and sold as goods for over 400 years. So this book is the first book ever to center a much bigger history of many people, females, males, elderly, diseased, disabled, and it's going from the point of capture within the within Western Africa to the point of sale within the Americas. But what is it, what it is that has people, what people have talked about is how it's written. So I really I really retrain myself on how to listen to the world so that way I can know how to talk to the world. That meant if I was watching the news, then I would really pay attention to certain words or concepts or certain things that would make you feel. So over time, what this book has done is it's written to center the horrors, the horrors of the slave trade and really look and, and showing in real terms this violent enterprise that went on that was sponsored by many people, by merchants and most of all by money. But that said, looking at suicide, looking at... Um, the medical history, looking at disability, also even looking at like abortion and miscarriages, but really thinking about the black body in a whole other way within this um, realm of slavery, but also what I call slavery at sea. So it is looking at the middle passage, the slave ship experience and giving a much deeper bloodied understanding to it. So that way we can go beyond just the numbers and these colorful diagrams in order to leave it at the triangular trade. So in short, it's a violent history of slavery that tells the story of many people. Also, when you won the um, Dress Cut Award, like, what, what were you feeling at that moment? When I got it, when I received it? Yeah. Well, when I, when I had received word, I was astonished because I still, this is, common for some people that I know as well, that it's almost this fraudulent feel that you feel like, hold on, what? Like people are really reading my book. Wait, I got an award? Because for so long, you know, to hear at times, oh, you know, you're not a good writer. You know, things like that can 
make you not have confidence and ever see a possibility of that. So when I got the Dred Scott Award, it also had come after getting another award. So all of it, what, what it was doing was reaffirming for me that there's more work to be done. And wow, there are more than two people actually reading your words. And so now this book has been out for five years and the audiobook is coming soon. Um, and I'm so excited because again, it's like every year that it's been out, it gets that much bigger every year. That's so cool. Thank That's you. So and cool. there's a book soundtrack. Forgot to mention that. What? Congratulations. Awesome. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Congratulations. Thank Absolutely. You so um, so Jim I was like, so when I did research on you, I watched a lot of your videos on your website, but I also found a podcast on uh, Facebook and you were talking about like how when you were at WashU, like WashU kind of like discouraged students from like exploring the city, like north of mm. Delmar. And uh, I wanted to ask you like, what made you want to like explore that city and what driven you to like create stories that represent the community? Cause uh, you, you got a unique eye from, uh, I think you were born in Japan and then you lived in uh, Korea for a year? Yeah, I was living in uh, Korea, Seoul for a year in my high school senior year. Yeah, so you, mm -hmm. you like have a unique eye like coming to uh, St. Louis. So I, I kind of want to hear about your perspective and like what made you want to, you know, go somewhere where it might not be the safest. Mm. Well, you know, I really didn't know anything about St. Louis really when I first moved there. So, you know, it was it was I didn't even know like where all the cities were. Like I didn't know the geography well. So, you know, at the time it was just, you know, I'm going to college and I'm going to this architecture school. And that was, you know, I didn't really think of much, but as you know, as I spent more time in St. Louis, I ended up spending five years there. So just, you know, seeing growing up and just hearing about America, it was just such a different experience for me, just living there versus, you know, what I imagined it to be from getting all these images from, you know, TVs and movies and things like that. So, or how the media was portraying America was not what, what, what I saw or what I saw as I started, you know, exploring more. So, and you know, the, the North, you know, the Del Mar is, is a kind of a, it's a kind of a known cliche. I feel like at WashU, it's like, don't go north of Del Mar. But I literally heard that so many times when I was at school. So it was like, everybody understands it as a, some kind of a, you know, a, what is it like an unspoken kind of agreement or something. So, um, but then, you know, so in my, after I've, I've done some, you know, um, community building uh, class with Bob as well. You know, it was it was all these things that kind of led me. Like I said, I had friends that was living in, um, if you guys know, like on Olive, like I know some friends that was Crumpers that was living um, on Olive, like kind of all the, like near um, the supermarket. And so I had friends that was living um, in the area. So, you know, I would go there in session and things like that. Uh, but, you know, people at school, people would say, don't go north of Delmar. So just seeing that contradiction, you know, it was like, I, I just want, I, you know, it was like, there's something there that maybe, you know, school is trying to maybe hide and things like that. And so, you know, it was just a lot of, as a, as a, as someone who's coming, not growing up in the States, it was just a lot of, you know, question marks for me. So, uh, you know, obviously, you know, um, I like to know the things that, you know, it's like, if I have a question, I want to kind of, you know, explore and find out. So what is all the, why, why are people telling me not go to North of Delmar? Because it's, 
you know, there's dangerous and all these kind of things. But as I learned kind of, you know, through all these things, like how, why it was made that way or why the divide is physically there, you know, geography and also from policies and different divides like North and South too, but also, you know, East and West of uh, the city and the County, you know, all these different divides, divides that I was literally seeing and also, you know, seeing it physically, you know, manifest itself. So that was a big, you know, thing for me to, and if I, let's say, you know, if I maybe didn't have people that I knew or friends that was living there, I think I would have had less of a inclined to kind of, you know, go there because, you know, why would I go to a place I don't know or things like that. But because I had friends that was living there, it was, it was, I think I had a more of a drive to really like find out what was going on. And so, yeah, the crump scene also, not just the crump scene, but just like in general, the, the dance scene for me, like kind of helped me connect these kind of things that I see kind of, you know, facts and statistics with something more personal, like personal experience from like once one-on-one. Absolutely. I think that was a great question and a great answer because I was going to ask, um, what was one of the things or what is what was something that touched you or changed your per, a perspective you had, you know, about St. Louis while you were documenting it? Um, you know, there's just so many moments like, you know, the protest is, is definitely, you know, a lot of things happen, but also on more, you know, I had a, um, just like you guys had the dance battle, like last year, I, w- I had a dance, I organized a dance battle right off of, um, there's that Budweiser sign on right next to Slew's Highway. And it's like Slew's on this side onto the right, but on the left side, there's this empty lot and then there's a big Budweiser sign. I had a, I organized a battle once there and that's when I kind of brought all the dancers and I, you know, I brought all the Wash U kids there as well. And I think that was a real moment for me to see, you know, what people would say, like people on these both kind of opposite poles where people don't really interact, like Wash U kids don't really interact with, for example, people from Ferguson on a daily basis. So just kind of seeing that come together and it was, you know it was a very peaceful fun kind of event that happened and so just seeing that like seeing the possibility of like what the city can be like because that was just like that empty law right there but what if that was like the whole city and i was just thinking about that uh at the at that time and so that was that was definitely a moment for me um but i think the most moments are definitely like when i talk to people on like a one-on-one or get to know them on one-on-one instead of like a big thing that happened like i know you know i know the riots and everything was you know it was a definitely an intense experience but that's not something that you know that necessarily like moved me and personally in a way it was just kind of a chaos but i think something that moved me more is these kind of daily interactions with with these dancers or people that i meet in, in the streets Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And then I have one more question real quick um, for June. Going back to you filming the dancers, I wanted to ask, you know, from your perspective, what role did dance play in the lives of the in- individuals that you were filming? Because I know for some people it could be healing or it could just be like an outlet or a hobby. But like, what were, what was the role of dance for those individuals? You know, I think it's it's everything that you just mentioned. It's definitely like, definitely a healing process as well. It's, it's definitely a 
big, big part of it. Uh, also expression, you know, they say it's an expression for all, like everything that they experience. They, if, you know, they always, well, one of my friends would say like, if I didn't have Crump at that time, like, you know, what would I have been doing? Cause it's like, there was no outlet to channel out all these things that they were taking in. And so Crump was a way for them to kind of, you know, kind of express and let out those, whatever it was, you know, anger, frustration, or what, all those emotions they were able to kind of channel it out through crumping is, and so, and it's not just crumping, it's for, you know, any style of dance as well, but crumping is kind of, you know, it's, it's so direct, like you can really see the person's like, if they were angry that day, you can see it. If they were, you know, happy, like you can kind of see that too. So it's, it was, um, um, you know, kind of for me, like seeing that, um, I think other people can see it too. It's like a direct expression of whatever they're feeling at the time. So for me to capture them kind of, you know, dancing while all these things were happening was, uh, was definitely important for me. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Uh, I, I got a question for uh, both of you. Out of all the art that you've created or um, been been involved with, what's each of your favorite pieces of art that you've been involved with? Um, yeah, okay. So I want to say The Buck is actually one of my favorite films that I made because it was, it's definitely like personal for me too, just because they're all, you know, they're all, uh, friends that I know in, in St. Louis and so that was you know of course like making the whole process making you know, each process is different for but I think the buck for me because I was working on the buck uh, when I was freelancing after I graduated from WashU so I wasn't even, you know even going to school at the time so it was you know it was definitely just 100% you know like my initiative to to make the film and to like tell those tell their story so um, yeah, the buck would be definitely, you know, my, one of my favorite films to this day, even though it, I don't think it reached as many as people that I would have liked it to be because of the way kind of I made it. it was, it's, it's a little longer than most short films. And so, but every time I, you know, look at it, I feel, I feel something and I feel, you know, all these different emotions. So yeah, the buck would be definitely my, my favorite film and, you know, one of my favorite films to this day that I made. All right. And I was really thinking about this. There's the expected answer, and then there's the unexpected. <laughs> <laughs> that means, of course, I love Slavery at Sea. I still can't believe I wrote it, but I did write it, and spirit flowed, flowed through. And I'm proud to know that there's something for the future. There's that. But mm. then there is what I've done that has been art in and of itself to bring all kinds of people together in the things that I do. But I'm most proud of for many years doing community drum circles and leading like drum mm. meditations. So mm. bringing all kinds of people together. So that is art in and of itself as we are now standing in an extremely divided just world. And I think about the role of the drum um, in that way and then the art and how it can be therapy in these whole other ways mm -hmm. and introducing people to themselves and find your voice and find your spirit. So that, for me is art. And then knowing too that I'm, I'm, I'm doing my best to, to give to the future who are now out in the world. So it goes beyond just like a contained one little conversation. It's like, it's not even just that. It's like, again, activation is filtering. It's resonating all throughout the multiverses. So for me though, drumming, drum circles, people coming together. That is the greatest art that we ever can 
can produce, I feel like. Beautiful. Know? Yeah, art is definitely uh, therapeutic. Yeah. Therapeutic. Oh, man. Yeah, that goes without saying. Ironically, uh, in our first installment of this series, uh, Trauma, uh, Understanding Trauma, that we did with Dr. LJ Punch, they expressed that art is a uh it's 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 a genuine form of therapy like it's not it's not just something that we say is oh yeah i feel better after i uh express myself artistically but but know that that it has actual benefits there, there's actual physical and mental and spiritual benefits to yep. uh expressing yourself artistically so that's not just like a throwaway statement or anything that, that there's there's some uh, legitimacy to that mm-hmm. absolutely um both of you uh both of you uh typically use your art to educate how strongly do each of you feel about the notion that understanding the past and present um, is the key to having a brighter future? I can go first. I think, you know, essentially, like, for example, like the whole point for kind of Bob's tour or when he was giving out the tours was really trying to see, you know, more beyond what you were actually seeing. And so, for example, like all the historical neighborhoods you don't see them anymore because you know they have all the highways and all these shopping malls that was covered so like for example for me if i didn't know about all these things and i'm just going to you know target or if i'm going to just drive across the highway like not knowing that i think it would just be a totally different perception that i have like every day as opposed to knowing something that was there before and seeing the patterns and seeing um you know i think that just makes the perspective just so much more like workable with like other people and like working or seeing the future as well like you know if i didn't know all those things like i wouldn't even think about for example um like not just making films but just on a daily basis like interaction wise as well and so i think understanding the the past is definitely you know because we just make the same you know history repeats itself for for a reason so i'm you know i'm trying to see if i can by learning the past i think we can definitely you know make a brighter future and uh, as cliche as it sounds but like keeping yourself really like awareness i think is like the biggest thing for me like keeping yourself aware you know where you are and also like where 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 the things were before you know things like that so and myself, I'm, I'm, I'm really thinking about this in a big landscape i'm thinking about how the times that I feel like we're living in now that I felt like we've been here before and then it becomes important as I press upon my students for you to know you're not the first. You're not the first to move these conversations. However, it is joining, it is aligning in a collective sort of force. That means to live through Rodney King, to live through Amdu Diallo, to, to live through Abner Muima. Then, decades later, to, to still be living through all of that and to have to really do my best to contextualize this for students to understand that there were feet on the ground, there were collective voices in many decades, many centuries before. And so all of this is playing out now, but we still have to have remembrance in all of it. And as we're coming off the end of Black History Month, I've really been thinking about where we are in our commodification of Black culture and Black history, where we feel like we know it all, but then what do we know in our celebratory, in our in our celebrating, and yet we don't even realize how long that these conversations have been set in motion. What I'm saying is that in where we are now centering Blackness, it is about looking at the preservation of Black stories over time, how that is enshrined within the future in other ways. And so I think about that 
being a part, being a lifetime member of the oldest Black history organization in the world that was founded by Carter G. Woodson. And to be a part of that, it's, it was important for me to know who came before, and then it will be it will be important for the students that I've trained and, and all those that I've worked with who will come after that will then ensure a legacy of so much more re remembrance. So again, I think about many lanes and many layers of all of this. Absolutely. Definitely. I kind of want to piggyback off of, um, piggyback a question off of what um, you all were just talking about. Um, and Dr. Shawande, um, I was wondering if you know um, how people, you know, especially minorities and especially African-American people, how how can more people find out more about their heritage before slavery? You know, because a lot of times, like, is there any like free resources that they could use to research or, you know, would you recommend something specifically? Because I hear a lot about like the ancestry but you know, people may not have the funds to do. I'm say that's not free. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This, people may not have the funds to do that. So, what would you recommend for someone who's looking for that knowledge and wanted to know about you know where they come from and their bloodline? Well, that's a tough one because I hate to say it. It's big business now in ancestry. Whether we're talking about a website or we're talking about who are you, and 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 so promoting all that again, that's not free. So unfortunately, we think about even before slavery. We are dependent on technology. And I think, of course, we know that. Being in a pandemic, we can't quite go and have the foot traffic in the places that we used to. However, what your question is also doing, is it, 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 it offers an opportunity to think about the future. What are the needs going to be as the world is changing when, say, we may not be able to travel at this time or, you know, let's just say even in the future for a moment that we couldn't get to these places. How do we bring that to, how do we bring that home? How do we bring that into the, the you know, into the minds, the hearts, and in the, the sight of understanding of those? And honestly, it's bringing me to film, it's bringing me to VR, it's bringing me to so much about how can we capture something before and then bring it in a more like tangible experience for people to immersively learn. So that could be something to think about for the future because while that still won't be free, it still could be something accessible in other ways. Of course, it then is reimagining new ways of memorializing and remembering the past. Um, but yeah, to answer your question, I think right now it really becomes search engines um, that become so-called free. Of course, that then means you gotta have internet. Um, but right. about all of that, I think we're not there yet, to be honest with you. I can't, outside of the big business of ancestry, I can't think of a particular resource pre-slavery that, no, not right now, not on top of my head, but again, this is an innovative opportunity to think about. Absolutely. And would you like recommend, I guess, any books to like maybe a young, um, a young African-American person who's like just wanting to know more about that side of them? Yeah. You know, I'm thinking of Walter Rodney, how Europe underdeveloped Africa, just sort of thinking about what came before, what 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 came at a cost. Um, even looking at the miseducation of the Negro, Carter G. Woodson, where we're thinking about souls of black folks, this is contextualizing a, a whole other history of understanding of black people. Um when I was in junior high, and this is going to books, bookstores, my mother would take me to bookstores all the time. Shek Auntie Dia, uh, um, it, he was talking about all these, he had this, these various volumes on African civilizations. I'm, I'm like trying to see my, my library growing up 
all these various books. Um, God, yeah, more will come. So I can I can send some to you so you can post them. Okay, sounds good. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks, but I do want to thank everybody for listening. Uh, thank you for coming back, Dr. Shuwandi Mustakim, for joining us again. Uh, thank you, Joan Bay, for coming back. Thank you, Stitchcast, for helping us out. Uh, please tune in for our fourth installment where Joan Bay will be returning. Uh, Joan Bay is going to come back. Uh, we're also going to have Super Storyteller. Facts, facts. We're also going to have Super Storyteller uh, Bobby Norfolk join us as we talk about oh, yep. stories as healer in uh, black culture. So uh, thank everybody once again so much for joining us. It's been an amazing conversation like we knew it was going to be. It's been an incredible podcast. Thank you guys one more time. Stitchcast Studio Session 2 in 2021 is sponsored by the Spirit of St. Louis Women's Fund three-year grant from 2020 to 2022, Arts and Education Council PNC grant, and Lush Corporation's The Charity Pot. This episode of Stitchcast Studio Special Edition, The Divided City, is funded by the Divided City Initiative. The Divided City is a joint project of the Center for Humanities and the Sam Fox School, College of Architecture and urban design at Washington University in St. Louis. The Divided City is funded by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. They say who that, but you already knew that. That beat them story stitches, story stitches, story stitches, story stitches, story stitches.